Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If anything defines the world's view of England, it's the rolling green fields that make up its countryside. It's still shocking, however, to realize how much of that land is in the hands of the same families who have owned it since the Norman Conquest, and they took it by force. Joining me today is Hannah Grieg, a historian who's focused on the 18th century. We're going to talk about how the aristocracy have defended their position in society through civil wars, famines and revolts, and how they will probably keep hold of it long after we're all gone. Welcome to Future Imperfect. So, Hannah, lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, how would you like to introduce yourself? So I'm a historian of 18th century British history. I also work as a consultant to film and television programmes. So we're interested in kind of entertaining present audiences with stories of the past in those productions. Now, I would like to start with film and telly because I know that that can be quite a minefield when you're a historical advisor because without necessarily mentioning any individuals or any individual productions, sometimes what works on TV isn't actually historically authentic in any way, shape or form, but, but <gasps> is needed. And other times you want to be accurate, but, you know, people don't like it because the outfits are changed. How do you deal with the politics of that then from your perspective? Or are you just there to advise? And if they don't take your advice, then that's their problem. Well, I'd like to say, Jason, that, of course, all the productions that I work on are completely accurate, so we never get anything wrong. <laughs> but, um, but we would know that isn't, that isn't really the case because all TV and film productions take liberties in terms of the stories they want to tell. So I usually say to people that I see my job as a consultant as helping productions make choices about what they do with history rather than mistakes. So if you see things on screen that make you shout at the telly because you've got historical knowledge that makes you think it's not right, it's usually there for a good reason a well thought out reason to do with all kinds of things, storytelling, character development, what an audience expects. Not all of the audience is necessarily an expert in the historical periods that we're dealing with. Well, that's true. I mean, do you find when you watch historical 
content outside your period of expertise that you can watch it differently than when you're watching content that falls within your area of expertise? Or, or do you always find bits to not obsess over, but just comment on? Well, I think we always like to have an opinion, don't we, about anything we watch on the telly. And it's not, you know, it's not just historical dramas that get kind of subjects of conversations about getting things right or wrong. I mean, crime dramas, you always have people on the Twitter, don't you, saying, oh, that wouldn't have happened in terms of that investigation or so-and-so would never really speak like that if they're a policeman. Whatever kinds of areas of expertise you have, then you tend to like to shout at the television around it. But I just love television, to be honest. I mean, I'm not a very good critic, I have to say, of either history dramas or any other kind of dramas, because I just, I really love telly. I love stories. I love being drawn into a world that's separate from my own. And so I'm not a very good kind of critical viewer. I'm just, you know, someone who's happy to be taken along on this lovely journey. So I I only shout at the telly if someone puts something in that I told them not to put in and it gets in anyway in a history drama. (laughs) So that's the only thing that makes me get across. What do you think are the biggest changes from your sort of chosen period to now that if we went back into the 18th century as modern people, we would find difficult to cope with or we might find you know quite extraordinary I mean you've got a very different class system have you potentially so before we had a chat Jess I thought what lessons would we learn from the 18th century and I thought what are the greatest lessons from the past that we could take with us into the future and it occurs to me that one of the groups of society that is most enduring seems to be the most resilient and the most successful in terms of holding on to their position and their power is the British aristocracy in that we have a system today still where we have an aristocracy of of dukes and peers and lords and ladies who are still part and parcel of our society. And they've endured for centuries, retaining that position of authority. And the 18th century is one of the great heydays of that kind of aristocratic system. And as a historian, it was one of the areas that I studied. I'm interested in what gives people power and allows them to keep it and under what structures small groups of people have a lot of authority and the 18th century aristocratic system is one of them but that system has sort of endured in Britain and today we have this nostalgic interest in the aristocracy as though it's part of our kind of quaint heritage culture we sell down to Nabby as a kind of guidebook to what it's like to live in the country house (laughs) and um, you know we visit all these country houses and And it's sort of a fascination as well, I think, for visiting tourists about this British class system and and the aristocracy and who they are. But they're also a story about incredible resilience. And I think we could learn, if we could try and replicate how they have retained their authority over time, then we might be able to withstand any challenges that we face as individuals in the future. So I think we need to look to that aristocratic system. This is not to say I condone it at all. It's not a system that I think we necessarily need to have. But um, I think it is a system that is worth looking at in some detail and thinking, well, how is it that they managed to, to hang around for so long? Well, would you differentiate aristocracy from nobility? I had this conversation a few times. and It's a really interesting. They're two different words. And do they mean similar things or are they in fact different? You know, is the aristocracy a new thing compared to nobility or are they conflated entirely now? What do you think? Oh, this is where we can get all geeky, isn't it, really? (laughs) So aristocracy as a term is one that's used 
later on in my period of specialism in the 18th century, it's not it's not the term that's commonly used to capture this elite group. Nobility is, you're right, is the word that's more often used, which means a group of noblemen, a group of noble families who carry a title. Aristocracy as a term in the 18th century had a little bit of a negative connotation in being about a power held by a few, a sort of almost corrupt form of, of government, basically. But then it becomes used to mean this elite world. And now our modern terminology tends to use aristocracy over nobility to capture that kind of world of noblemen, of dukes and lords and viscounts and earls and, and whatever. But there is a kind of history of, of the language behind it. But nobility, I suppose, is the more precise term, um, if we want to, or just the peerage is another one. It's fascinating how the system's quite complex. And so we do have these different terms. I mean, nobility, I believe, comes largely from or the concept of it comes from the Norman Conquest. I mean, let's face it, if you trace our nobles back with very few exceptions, the Anglo-Saxon ruling class sort of dwindles, disappears. There are some examples, and there's a fascinating study. If you look at the names of bishops in ecclesiastical places, up to the Norman Conquest, they're all sort of egg names and the Athel names and that kind of stuff. They're all clearly Anglo-Saxon names, which, of course, they were a tribe that came over anyway compared to the original settlers of the islands. Um, and then the Normans swap almost immediately, and they're all Henrys and and that kind of name, with a few sort of odd normal ones like Odo, which is a brilliant <laughs> name that should be brought yeah. back again. Um, Let's bring that back. Yeah. But, you know, James and Richard and, and Henry and Mark, they're, they're all sort of they're quite Norman. And they basically took the land and said, right, we own it now, and the reason we own it is we will beat you up. Yes, um, we, we have. This soldiers. is a useful lesson from history, I have to say, Jason, is to get a lot of land and protect it at all costs. Yes, literally <laughs> building <laughs> castles. And I'm wondering if you see a parallel between the stately homes making a sort of statement in the environment as massive piles of money and basically intimidating the locals into going, well, they're obviously important and special because they've got this enormous house. And if that's part of the aristocratic survival mechanism... Yeah, it definitely is. One is about yeah making a statement about your presence and a very visible show of your power. And that can take lots of forms, but land and property is definitely key. I mean, the other thing with having land and property is that it allows the nobility or the aristocracy, whatever we want to call them, to suggest that they have a, a real investment in in the fabric of the country because they say they're landowners, we own property, so we are we are invested and we can do good in society. So there's a sort of clever positioning that this elite world makes in that they control a lot of lands and a lot of wealth, but also imply that it helps other people for them to have this level of control because they're free from kind of private interests. So they can represent people politically because they're so wealthy. It doesn't matter to them what the outcomes of particular political bills are. Um, they have enough wealth and land to share to help other people and be paternalistic and generous and and good. And so, um, you know, we sort of lose that sort of castle defence mentality and that kind of warrior mentality. And it evolves into a sort of more paternalistic positioning. But um, lots of the elements, I think, are retained from a previous model of nobility, which is about warfare, to one that's well, about yeah, social. Well, yes, exactly. They very much were soldiers. I mean, you know, Magna Carta and that high medieval period is very much about if you can't keep it, you shouldn't have it. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> and then that changes quite rapidly. Do you think that aristocracy is part of the, the sort of um, monarchy or do you think it's a supporting role or, or does it stand apart from it in your mind? I mean, they are two separate institutions almost in some ways, but they're inextricably linked. Well, certainly for, I mean, the period of history that I work on, mostly the 18th century, they are inextricably linked. And again, this is another clever ploy <laughs> about how to survive if you're an aristocrat, is that they are connected to the monarchy and that lots of the original titles are when the gift of the crown. So it was the monarch who created the Duke of whoever, Northumberland, say, or Norfolk. And they would suggest that their position is about supporting the monarchy in particular ways. So they have positions at court, they have a constitutional role in terms of being within the monarch's world. But for my period of history, they also brilliantly present themselves as the representatives of the people. They say that we are the counter that will stop the monarch getting too much power, that having an aristocracy means that we'll never have a tyrant or an autocrat, you know, who kind of takes over as a king or a queen, because we're an aristocracy who can counterbalance that power and the monarch must answer to us. This is one of the things that intrigues me about the 18th century in particular, is how they can both present themselves as part and parcel of a court culture and caught up in this world of the monarchy, but also representing the people and defending against having a tyrant on the throne. It's a brilliantly successful strategy, isn't it, really? Because they survive revolutions to come. They do seem and, to survive. And endure. So I just, yeah, it's intriguing. Especially in this island, they particularly seem to survive. But on the continent, they don't seem to have survived in quite the same way. I mean, is that true? Or Yeah, no, that's true. So it's definitely this... It's this intriguing question of why is it that Britain retains an aristocratic system over so many centuries and we still have it today when so many other countries decided to do away with that, you know, system of hierarchy and inequality. Here it has survived and endured. And I think that people are probably surprised that aristocracy is still alive today because it's a system that lives quite quietly in modern society. And yet way to do a map of the country and figure out who owns which bits of land and who some of the richest people in the country were, <laughs> then you would probably find that um, some of the same people who were the richest people and the landowners in the 18th century remain the richest people and the biggest landowners today. And that's those aristocrats. Are you aware of any families that have failed to survive? Because sometimes you can learn quite a lot from how people haven't managed to yes. survive in continuity and, and what they did wrong, potentially. Yes. Well, I'd love to say that there's families who didn't survive because they messed up representing the people or they they upset somebody but actually generally the families that don't survive are the ones that don't produce an heir so if you're to survive then you must procreate <laughs> is the key message as an aristocratic family so um so yes it's when there's no heir to the title that's generally where the line fails because the aristocratic system is one that's based on inherited title so as long as there is an heir to inherit the title, the title will continue. And the status that's accrued by that family will, will largely endure. And one of the successful elements, I suppose, of this community of people is that they diversify what their status means. So on the one hand, it's a bigger state, but it's not only a bigger state. For the 18th century, it's also about political power. So they dominated the House of Commons and the House of Lords. It's also about an inherited social position, about 
and acceptance that there's a hierarchy and you're at the top of the ladder. And it means that if one of those elements becomes challenged in some way, so you have a dissolute person in your family who totally runs the estate into the ground, you can still be a member of the aristocracy and endure if you've lost your country house. Because, well, what they do is they give it to the National Trust and then they live in a corner of it. <laughs> but they're still, they're still there. Or, you know, we have lots of significant political reforms that mean that the House of Commons gradually becomes open to more people, there's more people voting, you would expect the kind of basis of political power to be significantly challenged, which it is. But the House of Lords continues and continues today, which still is rooted in a kind of system of of inherited right to sit in the House of Lords. And it's gradually chipped away, but it's not completely removed. So you've still got that bolster. And then you just have your inherited belief in your self-importance, <laughs> which is very hard to chip away at. So there's a kind of diversification of what that status is based on. And even if one element changes, like the authority of the monarch or the status of the country house or the nature of your power in parliament, there's still other elements of that system that continue. And I think that is one of the elements of, of why, as a system, it survives over so many centuries, over so many potential moments of threat. It's because there's a slight flexibility there, but it's not a flexibility that means anybody can join. It's a flexibility that means that those few people who have that power and authority can can survive various assaults on their position. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Do you see the future for the aristocracy continuing in the same way? Or is aristocracy going to transform? Because I always think information is incredibly important now. There was a time when land was important because people needed it to grow food, but land is still important, but less important when you can import food in vast quantities from other areas of the world. And industry was very powerful back in the day. Uh, as we know, you know, the north of England was the powerhouse of the country for quite a long time. Can you see the aristocracy getting into the information age in the same way? Can you imagine them in charge of something like Facebook? I don't know, to be honest, they probably are, and I just don't know about <laughs> it. Not kind of any, any, any inside track. I think that, um, well, as a historian, you kind of see every you know, half century claiming that this will see the end of this aristocratic system. So the 19th century, they were totally convinced that it was the end of the aristocracy. Early 20th century, it's definitely all over. End of the Second World War, surely now this is going to be the end of that kind of inherited wealth and inherited system. And so far, none of those kind of generational cycles have been a predictor of the final chapter of our kind of British aristocratic system. So I hesitate to predict the demise when so many people have tried and, and got it wrong previously. I do wonder whether this sort of inheritance tax thing was sort of specifically designed to try to remove some of the inherited wealth and therefore level people, arguably level people down. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some truth in that. Yeah. And also the changes to the House of Lords were a significant attempt to to shift how politics was organised around that kind of hierarchical system. And yeah, taxation and, and all of those elements. But it remains surprising then that there has been inheritance tax and yet country houses have opened up their doors to visitors in order to generate the revenues that are required to offset those kind of financial penalties. But as a result, have now become integrated <laughs> into a kind of heritage and tourist landscape for the country. So in pushing one area by enforcing financial penalties they've just simply reinvented themselves yes i suppose so, people you know if you live in a stately home and it's open to the general public you're almost 
well, you live in a small corner of it, but you still have the place. But I, but I wonder whether you still see it in the same way as your, it's not your family home with servants and resources entirely at your disposal. Suddenly, you know, if you've got to drive somewhere, you, you drive yourself and you leave by the back gate and everybody points at you and goes, there's the Lord of so-and-so who actually owns this place. But is that actually a dwindling of aristocratic power? Because you sort of almost become a feature of the place that other people can gawk at. You're almost on display in some ways. I'm reminded of going to Blenheim Palace and it was a wonderful place and they put on some fantastic events there. But I'm not sure that I would want to live in a house that was constantly surrounded by people looking at it. It must take quite a lot of adaptation to cope with that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I think that's because we don't live in well, I don't live in a big country. So I don't want to presume, Jason, where you're zooming from now. Um, I think the answer would be that those houses and those owners would suggest that they are simply following a longer tradition of offering something to a public. So, I mean, a house like Chatsworth, for example, there's 18th century visiting guides to Chatsworth to people you know, to go and visit the, the properties. In the Jane Austen novels, Elizabeth Bennet goes on a country house tour and she sees Mr. Darcy's house because they go and visit the housekeeper who shows them around, you know, when he's not in residence. There's a, a kind of long tradition of that sort of visiting and looking and, and sort of spying on how this very exclusive world lives that has long roots to it. So I don't think such a sudden jolt for these families in the 20th century to then become either national trust properties or private properties that are open to the public, because they are stages for public display in lots and lots of ways. So that's been going on for a long, long time. People have been visiting these amazing buildings as yeah. tourists for quite some time. Yeah, for quite some time. But what happens in the 20th century is it becomes monetized. <laughs> so it becomes a commercial revenue stream for country houses. And there's a country house industry now. I mean, we have television programs, don't we? Country House Rescue. We have behind the scenes programs about these families' lives in these houses. We have Downton Abbey that then fictionalizes what this life is like. And it's sort of embedded in a kind of cultural landscape with a very strong commercial element to it. So the difference from the 18th century country house being open to a visitor and the modern country house being open to a visitor is that the modern country house can create a revenue from those visitors, whereas the 18th century was open because it was seen as as part of a, a landscape. It was important to communicate to the local population. It was important to, to show off 
the parent status that you had, but you wouldn't charge people entrance for a ticket. But now we have to pay to go and visit. <laughs> we probably pay in multiple ways because obviously we pay via our taxes into a central system that then gives money out to august organizations to maintain these places and i i was talking to somebody the other day and they said some of the aristocracy were very canny because what they did is they they bequeathed all the expensive parts that were hard to maintain to the nation for the benefit of the nation but they maintained the money coming in from the tea room and the parking <laughs> so yeah. and literally they've moved into the stable block but they've got all the income and we've got all the expenses because we've got to keep a roof on this enormous palace at our cost to be visited but they sell scones and tea to tourists yeah. and make the money out of it so there's a lot of a lot of canning. that's why it's a lesson in survival yeah. because it's about reinvention it is it's about yes. how to retain that position whilst also not anyone really noticing that you have i mean this is what is always remarkable to me is that we think of this kind of system of hierarchy and this elite world is historic as it's part of our heritage it's sort of this old world these are living families <laughs> who still occupy these these positions today. So I, I find it intriguing how they survived. And I, I would love to say, that having studied this, there's a solution. This is all we need to do to finally bring about the decline of the aristocracy. But unfortunately, in studying history, all I discover is that it's really hard <laughs> to remove them. So, Well, I have to say, I quite like the idea of nobility but it comes with obligations, this idea that if you are, I mean, this is very medieval and it's not what the aristocracy do so much today, but back in the day, you were effectively a manager of an estate and you had to look after a whole bunch of people because you needed the horses and the people and all the working things that lived on your land to work the land. So you got money, but they needed it in turn. You needed to coordinate their resources and have them work together for the greater good, arguably. So the concept of being an exploiter and being noble is obviously something that did happen. But I think if you run your estate well, you actually are running it as a, you know, for the benefit of everybody. People might not see it that way, but, you know, keeping roofs well, that, on people's houses. Yeah, that was certain. That's certainly the case, you know, for the 18th century nobility that I've studied and that there there is a sense of, of responsibility of hierarchy where in your position of authority, then you have responsibility to those on your estate, those below you. There's a sense of public responsibility in terms of being politicians. And there's a self-belief that they are the most modern version of a society in the 18th century, the most democratic, and that the aristocracy is a part of that kind of modern success. They don't see themselves as feudal or kind of defunct in any way. The 18th century aristocrats regard themselves at the forefront of of a modern world and they're very confident in that position and you know that shifts over time and I don't think we would ascribe that same authority to that aristocratic society today but but then we have to think well how is it then that they've managed to retain their position but get rid of all of the responsibilities <laughs> like, <I> mean, <laughs> what an amazing technique that is yeah it's <laughs> fascinating do do you think there's anything we can learn from in the 18th century obviously you you start to have the Americas the colonies and all of that stuff starts to grow in power and, and start yeah. to bestride the world. It obviously takes quite some time. Do you think there's the equivalent of the aristocracy in the uh, in the United States, for example? You know, I feel that there probably is, but they wouldn't describe themselves as aristocratic. But do you see parallels in your studies or your thoughts? Well, you can always find parallels in that every society has a group of people who have more power than others. I mean, that you know is generally the basis of 
have even states that present themselves as communist society. There continues to be some people who have more power than others and systems of inequality and inequity. So it depends on how you draw the comparisons. I mean, the ideas of inherited position and wealth that underpin the aristocracy probably don't translate quite so well. Although, of course, now you have American families who are mega wealthy yes. and, um, you know, it's going to be pretty hard for them ever to lose that that money. But I mean, the 18th century is interesting because, of course, they face all of these challenges, these global challenges in terms of the American Revolution and also particularly the French Revolution, where their aristocratic neighbours are removed very violently. So it's as though there's this moment where there could have been this massive change. But what happens in Britain really is that the British aristocracy say, well, we support the idea of of a republic in America and we support the idea of a French Revolution because those French were totally controlled by the monarch, the monarchy, and the aristocrats had too much power and they were too big. And um, there were too many aristocrats in France. So of course, they should be trimmed down. And this is just France coming round to the British model of, of our system. And so they managed to sort of present themselves as, as supporters of what we might regard as pretty profound challenges to their status and position. They somehow managed to embrace it as though they are also the architects of those changes. There must have been a lot of fear about what would happen to these islands when such violent uprisings were happening in one of our nearest, dearest neighbours. You know, I mean, France was absolutely awful. I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but from what I've read, you know, the massacres of people that were nothing, well, apart from being parts of families and being denounced, and there are an awful lot of ordinary people who were denounced and were executed as well. I mean, are you aware of what was going on in Britain? So how they were coping with it? Were they preparing for armed insurrection or...? 18th century Britain is always prepared for armed insurrection from France, regardless of what's happening in France. We're always at war with France. So the idea that something terrible might suddenly cross over the channel from France is, you know, part of a whole century of, of anxiety for the 18th century. But historians are going to give you the answer. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> they never, they the never tell you it's simple. They never it's tell a, you it's simple. It's, the it's a very complicated question. <laughs> it takes years of study. But um, no, basically what the issue is, is that when the French Revolution begins in its early days, there's a lot of support in Britain for what's happening on the continent, because there is a genuine belief that Britain is a more democratic state and that we have had a revolution previously that's created a more modern democratic state and that France is now catching up, that France was more kind of feudal in its systems, that it, it was running a different model of aristocracy, a different model of monarchy, and that the start of the revolution, this is France just finally catching up and doing what, what Britain was doing. But then, of course, the French Revolution continues and evolves and becomes far more violent and far more thorough in terms of its impact on its system of monarchy and aristocracy. And that does, of course, create a lot of anxiety in Britain. And there's a lot of radical and revolutionary groups in Britain who are genuinely trying to create uprisings. It's not a stable political environment at all. But, you know, this is where they become the masters of reinvention, really, because there's a very careful political balance which seeks to avoid conflict in Britain. Politics is designed to not generate kind of opposition in the way that we have politics today. It's about trying to smooth over disputes and the aristocrats are running that and they moderate their behaviour. They begin to try and present themselves as professional politicians. They distance themselves from a more hedonistic past. They successfully articulate themselves as keepers of the public goods, of having a value. And, and we see this kind of reinvention into a 19th century system where 
that aristocracy becomes embedded in an idea of a professional political class and they just reinvent themselves a little bit. So do you think you can become an aristocrat if you're not born into it or do you, does one have to be born into aristocracy? Well, this is the other secret of survival, isn't it? It's how to get in. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that they are so successful is because it's a very hard group to crack. So the lessons from the 18th century would be that you marry within a very small pool of individuals. And that pool involves either people who already have a title in their family or people who have substantial wealth, because then you create the bedrock of what the whole system is. So marrying is key. It's very hard to be appointed into the aristocracy unless you in the gift of the crown. You need to become really useful to someone really important. So usually the monarch, historically, more recently, if you're really useful to the government, you might be appointed to the House of Lords. So we can hope, we can hope. <laughs> Would you actually want to be part of that group, though? No, it's difficult for a historian that I, uh, you know, people think that because I study an elite system, I sort of want to be in it. But I, I really don't. I'm just genuinely intrigued by how a small group of people can so successfully withstand so many assaults on their position in terms of their economic position, the ideas of status, how that changes over time, the ideas of political power, ideas of democracy, and yet still continue. It just seems to be this kind of conundrum of survival that is is fascinating to me, but I absolutely wouldn't want to be within that system. And also, I'm sure there are other ways that societies can operate. I really do think, I really profoundly believe that we could have other systems that should operate successfully, but as a historian, I find it hard to locate them. I mean, I've had discussions with people about the idea of an elected head of state. And of course, that brings with it its own populist issues. If somebody is born to be head of state, you're kind of stuck with them, but nobody's made that decision. It's just purely random and fingers crossed you get somebody who's good. But I suppose historically you would say you've had equally good and bad. Whereas when you get somebody voted in by people, that vote, particularly these days with electronics and people interfering with their elections in all sorts of different ways in parts of the world, you do kind of question whether it's actually better to have an accidental head of state who you can ascribe various roles to as opposed to somebody who has it for life, rather than somebody who's voted in on a regular basis, and then you'll get populist agitators or whatever it might be. I wonder whether that's more stable, whether the relative stability of of a monarchy actually underpins the relative stability of the aristocracy as well, and that they're all slightly understated. None of them have to stand for elections, so they don't have to say what they believe in or try to court the popular vote they can be a bit more subdued. I'm not saying that that Her Majesty is subdued, but she doesn't court publicity all the time like somebody who wants to be president needs to do. Yeah. I suppose if we were to say, if if society folded and we were to start again from scratch, what sort of system of government would you create? (laughs) And, um, you know, as soon as you start to try and think of the variables, then, then usually you end up with some kind of combination of different sorts of historical forms of government. So, I mean, I would like to think that at a human level, most people would think that everybody should be given an equal opportunity, that we would have an even society where things are shared equally. But of course, as soon as you start to enact that in reality, then you come across various different issues because actually maybe you need a decision maker. I mean, I've been in lots of meetings where we try and make democratic decisions and nothing ever happens. <laughs> so, you know, so do you then need someone who has some ultimate responsibility to make, to make decisions on behalf of the society that you're creating? So then as soon as you have that, you have to decide, well, how are you going to 
empower that person to make decisions. So, so we can vote for them, which is an obvious way. So they're then the most sort of by a popular vote, they become the representation of that group. But then on what basis do you make that vote? You know, is it about just winning friends? Do they bestow gifts to people? Do they bribe people? On what basis do you make that kind of system of voting operate? So then, well, do you need someone else as well to counter that person who's got the power? So you share the power amongst a few people. And so then you start to create a system where you have a kind of constitutional system that we have today, as you say, with a a monarch who's not elected, House of Lords and House of Commons, some of whom have hereditary rights, some of them don't, some are voted by the popular vote, an elected head of state, you know, the prime minister, who's through a sort of, I don't want to say popular vote, but a voting system. And then you create a balance. And so you sort of end up creating a society that has lots of historical precedents. It's hard to, to create something completely new. Yeah, it is interesting, that need to be able to make decisions. I've read a book on one of these management books on military styles of management, which was filled with all sorts of rubbish. But there was some interesting thing is there. It says the skill in management is actually making a decision. And then hopefully more of those decisions are the correct decisions than other bad decisions and that that's the secret but you've got to make a decision and we've all been in those committee meetings where nobody's actually decided anything and nobody's actually doing anything and literally nothing then happens as a result of it whereas one person saying right I'm going to go over there and build a house or whatever at least something gets done now it might not be a good thing that gets done but at least something happens as opposed to everybody chatting forever there's a little bit like slacktivism I think it's called on social media where it's very easy to post support for something, which has a sort of value, I suppose. But ultimately, somebody's got to do something for that cause to make it actually happen. There's no point saying, I support X or Y. Brilliant. Now what's going yeah. to actually happen? Who's going to actually do yeah. something about it to Who's make next? it? Yeah. I can see that you could create an amazing reality TV show, Jason, from this podcast, where <laughs> you have different scenarios of survival and people have to create their own their own states (laughs) and one is going to be the model where everyone's got to be really nice to each other so my human model would be everyone's really nice we all get along we make decisions together and we share everything equally that is probably not going to win or survive (laughs) for very long but that would be my starting position and then you could have another you know reality tv show that's get as much land as possible protect it for as long as possible create as much wealth as possible and try not to share it too much. Yeah, um, I was, I was wondering, you know, people joke about benevolent dictator and, uh, and the trouble is you, if you had a dictator, they're likely not to be benevolent if they've become a dictator. The other, to become a dictator, you almost can't be benevolent. It sort of goes with the territory. But I also look at future societies as imagined by fiction writers, script writers or whatever. And you look at the Mad Max type of apocalypse in Australia and the absurdity of that. Everybody's wearing leather fetish gear really which is incredibly sweaty to wear in the in the outback in the first place so that's not the sort of clothing you'd wear and everybody's driving incredibly low mileage vehicles to get around again with scarce fuel you're not going to be driving a muscle car down the road but it looks (laughs) brilliant you know it makes for brilliant entertainment and i love the fantasy the reality of it is likely to be completely the other way around though horses might come back and the ability to manage and look after horses as a as a kind of renewable transport source and one of the things I was thinking about recently is the last year I've not really traveled very much I've used the internet I've used zoom calls I've had lots and lots of meetings all day every day but the idea of traveling to go to a meeting now seems strangely anachronistic actually yeah and an awful lot of time and money and I I sort of wonder back in the day when it was hard to travel, 
were people not traveling because actually they didn't really want to either it's not you know it was hard to travel it was expensive it took a long time it was slow and what's the point i mean write letters i mean they used to write letters i suppose letter writing has changed dramatically but yeah although i suppose the issue is that when something's a privilege then you want to be able to do it so travel requires time and money so anything that involves time and money involves a degree of privilege so then people tend to pursue it i think it's because in art for us, travel is a compulsion because we're required to do it <laughs> in order to get to work that you sort of choose not to. But I think that as soon as something becomes a sign of something exclusive, then you're more likely to want to embrace it. Yeah, a status thing. So the classic status symbol of the 18th century is the Grand Tour and young aristocratic men going off around Italy, in theory, looking at fine art, but actually mostly <laughs> having a lovely long gap here. And, you know, that's a very kind of classic kind of status symbol, being able to take that time and money to have that kind of travel and then to bring your souvenirs back for your country house is a sign of, of status. So I think that people travelled and chose to travel because it was yet another indicator of the social position. And I suppose, you know, I've been to Greece and I've seen the Acropolis or whatever the claim is, you claim to be worldly and well-educated because you've been there and lots of people can't afford to do that, don't have the time, the resources, and they can go, wow, you must be worldly wise. You've been to these fantastic places. And and I wonder whether that shades in, because in the medieval period, people went on pilgrimages and they actually travelled a surprisingly large amount of of the time. They had actually quite a lot of holidays as well. The pilgrimages all over the place and those were quite commercial these places pandered to people coming to visit and the all the tombs of people that could sort of cure your gout or whatever it might be. They were all very, very commercialised and important places for people to visit. People going all the way to Rome, for example, via Canterbury was relatively common. And I wonder whether that sort of pilgrimage thing transmogrified itself into the Grand Tour in some ways, that the, the religiosity wasn't part of it in the same way. But the aesthetic part of it was, you know, going to look at statues and palazzios and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And as you say, it's a form of pilgrimage, but without the kind of religious element to it, it's about a an engagement with art and a kind of European culture that then allows you to present yourself as sort of worldly wise in some way. And we could bring it back to country houses because actually that's, you know, people touring country houses in the 18th century within the UK are the kind of people who would not go on the grand tour, but had a little bit of money, the middle class or the kind of gentry to tour these country house estates where they then see elements of that grand tour that's been brought back by those aristocratic families. You know, the, the country house tour is a form of pilgrimage too. <laughs> and that kind of country house visits. Were the seasons as well? Because you, you very rarely hear about this these days, or at least in the circles I move in, people doing the season, they, they go to Ascot, they go to I don't even know what the places are anymore, but you know, there, there are sort of things to do at a certain time of the year if you're a certain person. I assume that still goes on. Um, were the seasons for travel as well? Were you supposed to be in northern Italy at a certain time when everybody else was there to be seen as well as? Absolutely, because it's about moving in a particular circle and that circle all moving around at the same time. So, yeah, the concept of the season in that you're talking about Ascot and things like that is an 18th century invention. Ah, right. Um, 
the idea of a London season is where it comes from. And it's when all the aristocrats came to London for the parliamentary season, actually. And they have their big townhouses and they stay for six months of the year in London. And there's a London season with events around that population, that elite population who come. And then they're out of their country houses. So their country houses can be open to the public at that time because they're not necessarily in residence. And then they all ship back to the country or they go to Bath or they go to Europe in the summer months, they go back. So there's definitely a seasonal element to it, but it's all about being in a particular exclusive club and moving in that exclusive circle. So I bet for the aristocracy or people that want to be aristocracy, there's probably places to be seen at certain times, like certain skiing resorts to be in at a certain time. And Yeah, I mean, for 18th century stuff, you want to be in London between October and March, and then you want to be in Bath after that, if you want to meet those people. And um And I think, well, it's kind of another element of what makes this system very successful is that on the one hand, this exclusive world of these aristocrats seem to be accessible because you can actually see these 18th century celebrities at particular times of the year in particular places. And they appear to be open. They appear to be as if you could meet them in the street or in the theatre. But of course, they're not really open (laughs) because um, they're just present. And it's about kind of being visible in public that's very important to an 18th century model of this kind of elite system. And and I think it's interesting that in a modern society, it's not about that visibility. It's about, you know, the power brokers are often the ones who are, have retreated mm. from public yeah, Meetings behind closed doors where things get yeah. decided for all of us. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, look, that's been absolutely wonderful. I, I'd, I'd love to talk more about the 18th century and the, and the grand tour. Just last question. Were the differences in the Grand Tour between what men and women did, or did they all move as a, as a mixed group? I mean, one hesitates to ask, because there's quite a lot of debauchery, I believe, went on as well. Historians used to think it was just men going off on the Grand Tour. You know, we always used to think that it's only men in history as though women never existed. <laughs> uh, but actually, you can find women travelling and touring as well, if you know where to look for the evidence. But they certainly don't go off together. It is an idea of a kind of young man's world of going off into Europe and you can travel freely as a band in a way that you can't um, so easily as a woman at the time. But that's not to say that women weren't traveling or weren't accessing um, some of the same kind of knowledge and information because they were. But yeah, the position tends to be that it's it's mm. a man's adventure. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Was there anything you wanted to share with our audience if they want to find out more about your work or what you do? I'm a co-host of a podcast called The History Film Club, which is for anyone who loves period dramas. So we talk to historians and filmmakers about putting history into drama for film and television. So that's a lot of fun. Um, I work on lots of TV dramas. So if you've been watching Bridgerton, then um, that's one of the productions that I work with, which is obviously a very accurate take on 18th century history. Here we just history. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. That's been um, really interesting. And uh, I'm now going to have to go and read up all of the 18th century because I feel there's a whole area of knowledge that I've missed out on. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jason. It's been really nice to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank okay. you. Imagine the 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.